a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Listen, I'm glad you could join us. We uh, regularly get together here to engage in wrong think, to revel in it, as a matter of fact. I want to thank one of my sponsors who makes this possible. That's uh, lifesavingfood.com. You know, if you're not interested in eating bugs, as Klaus Schwab and company would uh, prefer that you do, might be a good time to set aside some food for a rainy day. Just, you know, on the off chance a rainy day could be coming. I've got my friend Eric Peters on the line with me. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good, and you're sounding peppy, which I'm glad to hear. Yeah, I just I got my batteries recharged a little bit uh, this last week, taking a little time off, headed for the mountains, and it was very restorative. I have to ask, how was your Independence Day? <laughs> well, uh, it was good. I did my best to avoid any jingo celebrations of the freedoms that we no longer have and kept myself in company with people who get it, and uh, we celebrated our own independence from the mind control cult that haunts this country. Here, here. No, that sounds like time well spent. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in. I know we've got a number of different mm-hmm. directions we could go today. Um, I I wanted to, to get your take on, um, uh, there was a couple of climate-related things that we, we were, were going to touch on. The Dutch farmers is one of the things that's really stood out to me in the last few days. I see this yeah. through alternative media sources. I see this pop up on Twitter, but... Uh, What's your take on what's going on, not just in, in Holland, but I think in other parts of Europe, it sounds like the farmers are starting to, to push back against the uh, Davos crowd. Yeah, I think people are beginning to have had enough of it. And I also think, and this is much more important, that people are beginning to see and understand that this whole climate thing, the climate cult is much like the sickness cult. It's essentially the same thing. It's about manufacturing a crisis that doesn't exist fear-mongering and using guilt-tripping to get people to accept the diminution of their lives, their economic lives, their personal lives, uh, everything. You know, this is the common denominator here. And I think people are beginning to understand that they're being, they're being corralled and penned by people who want to use these things as pretext to insert them. And they're, they're beginning to say, you know what, I don't want this, and, and I'm willing to stand up. They have to stand up. They're at the point now if they don't, uh, and this includes us, uh, it's over. We, we're going to spend the rest of our lives as stoop-shouldered serfs uh, with our little tin cups out begging for our little bit of porridge and saying, please, sir, may I have some more? Well, and, and when it comes to being able to feed ourselves, it seems like that is one of the places where pressure is really being applied. I look at, uh, if I understand the situation in, in Holland, these farmers have been told, you're using too much nitrogen, so you're going to have to greatly reduce the amount of, of crops that you plant, uh, the amount of livestock that you have, and in some cases, you're going to need to give up your land to the government. Correct. Right. Uh, and note, uh, all of this is being ordered by people who themselves are not going to suffer in any way whatsoever. They're not going to be eating bugs, as you said earlier. Um, they're not going to be shivering in the dark and cold. They're going to be well-fed while everybody else is impoverished. They are taking a page straight from Stalin's uh, playbook, which was to control the food supply. If you control the food supply, you control the people. You know, uh, It's hard to function when you can't eat, much less resist tyrannical government. You're reduced to the state where... Uh, you're, you're simply 
hoping that maybe they're going to they're going to throw a piece of stale crust your way and you'll be able to survive until tomorrow. And that's unacceptable. And and we must do something about it or it's too late. Yeah, it's, you know, taken in the context of all the different food processing facilities that have suddenly been shuttered because of fires or explosions or industrial accidents or something. Plus, uh, you know, you have the the crackdown on uh, privately owned poultry with the the bird flu epidemic that that some say is sweeping the country. It it really, it feels like we're being backed into a corner where we're not even being allowed to provide for our own food. And, and we'll be utterly dependent on government. So if they hand us a bowl of bugs, we'll just be expected to say thank you. Yeah, that's what they hope for. And again, uh, I want to emphasize that these are all artificial crises that have been manufactured by this cabal who controls the media apparatus, not just in the United States, but worldwide, and is interconnected with the government apparatus and the corporate apparatus. And they're pursuing these ends for their own purposes that have nothing to do with pandemic and people dying or the climate changing. It's a bunch of nonsense. Well, there may be a degree of truth to it in that, sure, the climate changes. This term always annoys me because, of course, the climate changes. It's not static. Uh, You know, that's something that is a self-evident truth, but it's also completely unscientific in this context because you can't define it. You know, they went from talking about global cooling. You and I are old enough to remember that. And then they went to Global warming. The problem was that the actual data, the real data, not the computer models, didn't line up with their hysterical predictions about doom. And so what did they do? They came up with this really oily, slippery term, climate change, which, of course, encompasses everything. So that whenever we have a hot day in summer or a cold day in winter, they'll, uh, they'll crank up the fear organ and start talking about, oh, look, the climate's changing. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of people bought into it. Just the way they bought into the, you know, the fear about this this virus that was going to kill us all that didn't, uh, and it's the same people behind both, and the same motive behind both. Well, I think you and I have both been on the same page for a while about. This is why it's important that uh, you have some capability of of providing or producing some of your own food. You don't have to be, you know, a, a, a one man, you know, commune or a, you know, a one man homestead. But the more you're doing to grow your own food, to keep small livestock and so forth, the more options you have should there be a real long-term disruption to the food supply chain. Sure. And, you know, something else that bears on discussion, we've talked before about precious metals, and I'm all for that. You know, I think it's a sound policy to, uh, to, to put some of your federal funny money dollars into hard assets like silver and gold. But Having said that, I think also things like food are just as important as silver and gold, which may not buy food in the short term. You never know. You know, that's something that requires a functioning economy to happen, and you may not have a functioning economy. So it could be a lot smarter to just put some money into food, into the things that you normally eat anyway that are storable. So it's not as though you're buying a bunch of, I don't believe in buying crates of frozen, dehydrated, you know, camping style food because that stuff's awful. Nobody wants to eat that. <laughs> Buy the stuff that you usually eat. You know, right? You know what I'm talking about. Right. Buy the stuff that you usually eat that keeps, and then you can just rotate it out. And it's a no lose proposition because you know if nothing horrible happens, you got food, and that means you won't have to spend money in the future to buy more food. You know, uh, you're in good stead. Eric, what's crazy to me is what you're describing. To some people, sounds like, oh, that's more of that crazy survivalist talk. But yeah. there, there was a time when this was so mainstream that it actually was yep. called provident living. Correct. Exactly right. Yeah, people would can in, in the summer and the fall so as to have things over the winter. Because back in those days, you didn't have supermarkets. 
uh, that could provide you with, for example, vegetables that weren't in the growing season where you happen to live, but were in in another part of the world. Well, what are we experiencing right now? I, you know, I like the supermarket inconvenience as much as anybody else, but we're seeing these supply chain disruptions, and it's entirely possible that that you know these things will not be available. You know, even if you have the money to buy them, and so therefore having them is a pretty sound policy, in my opinion. Yep. Well, it, I'm going to be keeping a close eye on Europe just because I'm sensing that there's some pushback beginning um, in many places in the world. Maybe you saw some of the footage of out of Sri Lanka last week of the yeah. presidential palace being stormed. I'm not saying, hey, violence, that's a great thing, but it is interesting that people are reaching the, the breaking point and saying, at this point, we have nothing left to lose by pushing back. Yeah, it's indicative of something that you and I have talked about several times in the past, which is that you know up until the last couple of years, most of this stuff has been kind of hypothetical. You know, the left, these, these people would advocate for a new tax or a restriction on something. Uh, and most people would, you know, it would be kind of an academic exercise that didn't really directly affect them in a way that was, that was scary, you know. And, and so they could sort of go, ah, what the heck, that's just the price we pay for civilization. You know, they right. say it's about taxes all the time. But now we're getting to the point where these things are having uh, extremely noticeable ramifications and people are understandably becoming quite alarmed about it. You know, they're looking at the cost of gas, they're looking at the cost of food. They're, they're looking at these policies and actions as in Europe, as we've been talking about, that are telling people, you know, you can't even use your land to grow food on any longer. And, you know, that is serious business. That's no longer some annoying editorial that you read in the New York Times. This is this is the rubber meeting the road, and it's the real thing. And, you know, people, I think, are finally becoming aware of that and responding accordingly. Well, I hope we're learning from the, the lessons that these other folks are, are experiencing. Certainly, we learned from the, the Canadian trucker protest, now the Dutch farmer protest being joined by, be joined by German farmers and so forth. It's going to be very interesting to see how these governments respond. And, and likewise, what, what will the counter moves be on the part of the people? Yeah, we, have you have you followed what's been going on in China, where they have been seizing people's entire life savings, uh, you know, for being wrong thankful and and for not doing as the CCP wants them to do? Oh, I, I saw there were runs on the bank. I didn't realize they were seizing people's uh, money, though. Yeah, just taking them and saying that's it. And they uh, and the government responded when people went out into the streets and and, and attempted to protest that they were uh, they were uh, extremely hutted and, and subjected to violence, uh, violent violent suppression by the CCP government. Let's touch on this when we come back from the break, Eric. I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about it. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I've got a link in the show notes. If you'd like to go check out his website, it'd be well worth your time. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. All right, Eric, as we were going to the break, you were telling me about, uh, I, I knew there were runs on the bank in China, but I did not realize it was because uh, Chinese Communist Party officials were seizing people's money. What was this? What yeah, was that's the, my understanding of it. Was, was this uh, because they were flunking their, their social credit score or something like that? Yeah, I'm sure. You know, it, this is pervasive in China. Every person in that poor country uh, is under the surveillance of the social credit system, which ties into this ESG thing that they're trying to implement here. It's essentially the same thing. Uh, and it assigns value to you as a human being based on whether you are in conformity with, with whatever the leftist doctrine of the day happens to be, whether it's 
uh, your wearing of a mask or uh, you are getting a vaccine or whether you drive a car that has too big a carbon footprint. I mean, myriad, anything you can think of. Uh, they, they parent you in the way uh, an insufferable kindergarten uh, a, a teacher might, might parent a, a recalcitrant child. That's what's happening. And if you deviate from this, the punishment is financial. You know, we've seen this also in Canada where, where that thug, Trudeau, uh, was seizing people's bank accounts simply because they, they engaged in, in a still lawful activity, which was to send funds to the trucker protest. Nothing illegal about it. They hadn't violated any law, but this dictator, and that's what he is, unilaterally, unilaterally used his power to simply just take people's money, you know, and let people know thereby you better not do anything with your money that we don't like because if you do, we're just going to take it. And that sort of thing is going to happen here too if people don't uh, get attuned to it and get ready to fight it. Okay. Awareness is where it all begins, and I appreciate you helping us stay aware. Talk to me about uh, about your recent article about the yokes on you. This, this is a shift in automotive technology, and I'm not sure I find it a, a particularly good one. Yeah, nor do I. Uh, you remember when we were kids and we used to watch the Jetsons and the flying cars? Oh, yeah. Well, that's kind of a, what's happening now, except it's not in a happy way. They're incorporating this fly-by-wire or drive-by-wire technology that is used in commercial aviation into vehicles, which disconnects the physical controls of the car, uh, the throttle, the brakes, and now the steering from any mechanical direct linkage to your hands that control things. So uh, essentially, it's all about the programming of the car. So you've got this physically disconnected car, but at the same time, this car is connected to this board hive through the, the Wi-Fi, through its updates, and through the ability of these corporations and government that have the ability to, uh, to alter the program, programming of your car remotely, just as they do with a cell phone. You know, you get these updates you may or may not want. Uh, they are going to have absolute total control over your vehicle. And potentially, one of the really other alarming things about this is these cars could be hacked. And if somebody gets access to your car while it's moving and you know, you're turning the steering wheel, it doesn't connect to anything. It's the computer that tells the wheels to turn. Well, if the computer gets hacked and somebody tells the wheels to turn, you, you can turn the wheel, the yoke, all you want to, and nothing's going to happen. It's a really scary prospect to me. Okay, but this is supposed to be progress, right? Aren't we supposed to stand and, and thoughtfully applaud <laughs> when this is rolled out? That's, you know, that's what they say, but just because something can be done doesn't mean it ought to be done, and it doesn't mean that it's better. You know, I, I write about this and I talk about this often. You know, a good example of it is uh, what, what is the real benefit of having a push-button ignition rather than a keyed ignition? Does it, does it make the car any easier to start? Uh, or is it simply just a more elaborate and, and failure-prone way to do the same thing? A physical key that you put into the ignition lock will generally last 20 years or longer. And, you know, if you ever lose it or if it breaks, you can go to any hardware store and get a new key cut for, what, five bucks, right? Right, right. Well, when you have this, you have this electronic key fob, sometimes those fobs cost hundreds of dollars to replace, and they're proprietary. And you have to go to a dealer, and you have to get the thing programmed. And it's crazy to spend that amount of money to do essentially the same thing that the key does just as well. And you know, there are always so many other examples of that sort of thing that one could rant about. And that's why, you know, it's not that I'm a Luddite and I'm an old guy and I'm, I'm, I'm telling the kids to get off my lawn. <laughs> There's just no meaningful benefit of this to the average person. You know, what's the upside? Why is it better to have a drive-by-wire electrically controlled steering rather than uh, mechanical steering? You tell me. I don't see any benefit of that 
other than it's cheaper to manufacture because instead of having to connect things physically as a car comes down the line, they plug them in into modules. So it reduces the manufacturing cost. So there's that. And it gives the uh, it gives these these corporations a degree of control over what is nominally your vehicle. After all, you did pay for it, right? Uh, that they would never have had if you had the physical controls that can't be countermanded by, uh, you know, by updates and by over-the-wire transmission. Boy, that's a good thought. Now, I got to tell you, Eric, you have uh, you've rubbed off on at least one of my kids as we were driving to go camping last week. Uh, we were having a conversation about uh, automotive prices. And my son mm-hmm. asked me, Dad, why can't the car makers just make a basic car that doesn't have all the fancy dancy mm-hmm. stuff and, you know, is affordable for people, you know, just get you from point A to point sure. B. And I thought, kid, you need to, you need to go to Eric's website. And, and I'm, this yeah. is a topic you've touched on many times before. Yeah, it's a tragedy and it's a compounded tragedy because not only do we not have the kinds of simple basic cars that you and I can remember when we were his age, um, but they would be even better and even less expensive than they were back in our time due to manufacturing efficiencies. It wouldn't be that we would have resurrected 1979 Chevettes uh, or 75 Pintos. We would have modern vehicles you know, that had air conditioning, that had good stereos, which Chevettes and Pintos didn't have, uh, generally speaking, that could comfortably cruise at 75 miles an hour on the highway, all of those things. There's no reason that they couldn't manufacture cars like that for $10,000 or less. And that any teenager could buy new, uh, and which they could easily buy used. The only reason vehicles like that aren't available is because of this regulatory firewall that the government has erected that has made vehicles, new vehicles, increasingly unaffordable unless you're very affluent. The average price paid for a new car today is pushing $40,000, if you can imagine that. And that's just impossible for a lot of people, let alone teenagers and people in their young 20s. Yeah, I mean, I think what really got our conversation going was we were seeing SUVs and pickups and going, yeah, how much is this? What did I see the other day? The Jeep Grand Wagoneer? You're pushing close to $100,000. Yeah, right. Holy smokes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's completely, it's, it's, it's beyond all reason. And it's, it's beyond all sustainability, too. Because if you look at the average, I think, what is the median or average family income in this country? Family now. I think it's around 60000 bucks. So... There's just no way you can sustain uh, a car market that's premised on selling forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollar cars to people whose family income, you know, before taxes, is sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year. Ah, we live in interesting times, my friend. <laughs> what can mm-hmm. I say? I, I still think that you you've had some very solid advice in that uh, maybe a good bet is to get an older vehicle, something you can maintain yourself that doesn't have all the whiz bang computer stuff. And that, uh, that, you know, you get your fingers dirty, but hey, you know what's going on there. Yeah, not even so much. I happened to be watching wistfully a YouTube video yesterday of one of my past cars, which was uh, the Volkswagen Swearback, which was their wagon. You might remember this. They, they first brought that out in the early 60s and they sold it here through, I think, about 1973. And it was the first mass market car to have electronic fuel injection. And I can, you know, attest to the fact that this car uh, ran and drove as well as any modern car started right up because of that fuel injection. You hardly ever had to do anything to it except change the oil. Uh, and it was a wagon, and it was immensely practical. I loved that car. I had it when I was young, uh, just out of college. And, uh, you know, it's just such a shame that vehicles like that aren't available any longer on the new car market. However, they are still out there, you know, and if you want to educate yourself, even if you know nothing about cars, 
do a little bit of reading and find out uh, about what's available and consider getting one of these things uh, as, again, a stopgap against all of this nonsense that's being forced down our throats. And I'm assuming they're probably fairly easy on gas mileage as well. Yeah, they're not great because they didn't have overdrive transmissions. That's one of the one of the big, big technological improvements in cars over the last 30 years. But it did get, you know, 28, 27 miles per gallon, which is very good. Now, and even if it doesn't get 40, if you only paid 5000 bucks for a solid, uh, you know, drive-worthy example, that means you lose a lot of money in your pocket to pay for gas, even at Joe Biden prices. All right. We've been talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Great to catch up with you as always, my friend. Good old wine. Looking forward to the next one. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'd like to recognize Garage Door Pros, one of my sponsors here on the program, and I would encourage you to do business with them. Now, this is particularly true for my listeners in southern Utah, including St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, and Colorado City. We're talking about installation, service, and repair for garage doors. This is a locally owned company, and the doors are made in America. Here's here's why that matters. Uh, You know, for for some things, for certain certain parts and, and certain assemblies, it can be tough. You have a pretty long lead time. Well, Garage Door Pros has a much faster response, much faster lead time than other companies can give you. That includes on some of the really cool stuff like insulated garage doors. Very important during these hot summer months. They offer commercial service as well. Go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. I have a link right there in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. That's Garage Door Pros. I sure appreciate them being a sponsor of the program. Well, can you believe there was a time when the American people generally trusted the federal government to do the right thing? I'm going to include an article in today's show notes from Shaquille Hamid. They don't trust us. We don't trust them. And I'll just give you a real quick excerpt here. Uh, He's talking about specifically the short-lived disinformation governance board, rather, that reminds us just how out of touch Washington, D.C. is with the rest of the country. And he says, a long time ago in a country far, far different, the United States of America in October 1964, to be exact, as many as 77% of Americans trusted the government to do the right thing. Always or most of the time. Now, that was that was just before I was born. So I'm I'm you know, I don't remember a time like that. I remember, you know, a lot of distrust over things like uh, Vietnam and Nixon and so forth. But yeah. Now, he says, Shaquille Hamid says, don't get nostalgic, because apparently this was a uniquely gullible time for the American public. Because even during that time, even though there was the appearance, well, of course, we can trust him to do the right thing. That's when the FBI was busy spying on Martin Luther King Jr. Congress had just passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which effectively authorized the dumbest war in U.S. history on false pretenses. He says, sorry, millennials, Vietnam, which left over 58,000 Americans dead, thanks to our much-trusted government, was even dumber than Iraq, with 4,431 killed in action. But his point is this. Nowadays, Americans have a much better grip on reality. Only 24% are so foolish as to trust the government to do the right thing most of the time. 
So that's not so bad. This wasn't exactly a good environment for the Bush administration to try their uh, stand up uh, to stand up at government or disinformation governance board at the Department of Homeland Security. Thankfully, the backlash was very swift. The project is now, how did they put it, paused at DHS. But it's a great cautionary note on just how dangerously out of touch Washington is. And again, I've got a link to the article in my show notes. I hope you'll check it out. Now, sometimes you and I get the feeling that uh, it's hopeless, right? Okay, I can't be the only one who feels like, you know, the deck is so stacked against us. Occasionally I do. I get very discouraged. And of course, the Borg-like systems, the World Economic Forum and so forth, the ones that are trying to rule our world, really want us to believe resistance is futile. So I'm including an article from J.B. Shirk, The Davos Death Cult's Bad Moon Rising. It's a great article for a couple of reasons. Number one, because he's he's borrowing some lines from John Fogarty's ingenious uh, lyrical mind. I see a bad moon arising. I see trouble on the way. I see earthquakes and lightning. I see bad times today. You got to remember, when that song was written, when Creedence Clearwater Revival released Bad Moon Rising back in 1969, America was enduring another era saturated, saturated rather with political assassination, rising inflation, war, and internet and institutional rather corruption and although it became an instant classic reflecting the tenor of the times fogarty actually took his inspiration from a movie made back in 1941 all that money can buy which tells the tale of a 19th century new hampshire farmer who sold his soul to satan for economic success and he says tell me that's not exactly what's going on today when the World Economic Forum does Lucifer's work in exchange for the promise of its members' personal salvation. Now, he spells out part of what's barreling toward us. He says the the Davos death cult and its great reset deal with the devil to conquer the world is unleashing hell on earth. And he gives some great examples here. Dutch farmers are fighting for the right to grow food in a build-back-better world dedicated to mass starvation. The great and honorable Shinzo Abe of Japan lies slain, while the communists in China and throughout the world, or throughout the West rather, celebrate his death. Or his assassin, anyway. George Soros and Joe Biden have declared war against conservative members of the U.S. Supreme Court for daring to weaken the Leviathan's unilateral authority to dictate how individual Americans must live. Justin Trudeau is banning firearms in Canada before his subjects gain the courage to depose his regime. The U.S. government has ceded control of the southern border to both narco-terrorists and sex slavers. And in a, dis- in a disheartening example of how debauched crime and youth, fi- youth culture have become, seven Philadelphia teens recently recorded themselves beating a 72-year-old man to death with traffic cones. That's pretty disheartening stuff. So what's the good news? Okay. Well, here's the good news. <clears throat> he says, while they're pushing this, the big concern of the, the world leaders, the systems that are trying to rule us, is how to create docile, enslaved citizens who will not question their nonsense. How do we know this is going on? Well, look at how, uh, for instance, Oregon is training school teachers to indoctrinate students into rejecting the Western value of individualism. Come on, they wouldn't do that if they felt like it, it wasn't a threat. A government-funded pamphlet in uh, Canadian schools teaches that free speech is a common defense used by those who spread hate propaganda. And, of course, the American Civil Liberties Union and the National Education Association now have published a K-12 school guide insisting that children are, what does this say, never too young for sex change surgery. 
So the bottom line is there is a storm that's coming. That's for sure now. The question is whether the small group of people allied together these last few years to unleash so much misery for the rest of us really appreciate the mercurial mercurial nature of an outraged citizenry at their wit's end. For instance, if you have seen any of the video coming out of Sri Lanka and the violent revolts taking there, whew, not working out good for the globalist wardens there. In fact, they ended up having to flee the presidential palace before it was overrun by literally hundreds of thousands of protesters. By the way, uh, to the J6 committee, that's what a real insurrection looks like. So, the possibility is that, uh, yes, the folks who are trying to build back better have set in motion some very unpleasant events. But as J.B. Shirk says, when the obedient become irrepressible, calls for revolution spread like embers in the wind. And like those uncontrollable infernos, once people rise up against those who wish to keep them down, the heat of their passions does not easily die away. So there may be a bad moon rising for the Davos death, the Davos death cult. And by the way, I'm not celebrating that as, yay, bloodshed and violence. I, that's, it's a scary prospect. But keep in mind that people are starting to wake up. That's the good news. That's the thing to take heart in. And, and can I just point this out? The, the ultimate act of rebellion that you and I can do, the most revolutionary thing that we can do, is not to grab a torch or a pitchfork or a firearm, but to simply become the best person you can become, the highest character person that you can become. Now, if that sounds like a cop-out, if it sounds like, well, that sounds very pacifist, it's, it, it's not, really. Because what you're doing, when you become your best self, when you become a truly excellent person, you send shockwaves far and wide to every single person within your circle of influence. And that's something that no government or no, no uh, world economic forum or no system that wishes to control you can tamp down. Let me put it another way. If you are undeniably a good person, recognized as such by the people around you, your example and your influence will give them courage to do likewise. And you got to understand, I'm not talking about good just in the sense that I'm out there fighting political battles. I mean, you're a good person in that you can be counted on to stand up and speak the truth when it really counts. You can be counted on to do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing to do. You can be counted on to be courageous when the rest of the herd is running over the cliff you can be the one to point out that there's another way out of here. Now, I'm not going to suggest that this is easy. This is simply the easiest route. You know, it's the path of least resistance. Because it's not. It has danger. And it's uphill. And, you know, there are bumps and bruises. And, and the truth of the matter is, people will hate you for being a good person. They'll see something very sinister in that. You will be called names. You will be misunderstood and misrepresented. But that doesn't matter because you will also be having real, measurable impact on the world around you. And at this stage of the game, that's what really counts. So be a revolutionary by being the best person you can possibly be. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. HSLAmmo.com is one of my great sponsors. I've got a link right to their website. It's in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Click on HSLAmmo.com. Take a look around. Got a lot of great new and high-quality remanufactured ammunition. There for your choosing. Whether you want to use it to get out there and gain skill at arms or just go have some fun making a joyous noise. or I think this is, this is one of the wisest things I've heard people doing recently, and that is stocking up on ammo as a store of value. Yes, like the same way you would with other precious metals. Why? Because it will always have utility. It's a barterable good. It's something that people will always find useful. So, might not be a bad idea. HSLAmmo.com all right, couple other quick things here to cover. Um, I, I was I'm I'm a little disappointed in the sense that I really did hope that uh, maybe Elon Musk would buy Twitter <clears throat> and kick the censors to the curb. Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the Brownstone Institute, says Musk has declined to save Twitter from itself. He says the question's finally settled. Elon Musk has declined to buy Twitter. His initial offer of $44 billion was contingent on truth and transparency of the company's corporate filings. So it's no different from the contract you put on a house. The inspections still remain. And if the foundation is cracked or worse, if the owners block the inspectors from even looking into the question, the deal is off. And apparently there's a letter from Musk's attorney that makes it absolutely and painfully clear that Twitter did not cooperate. This is a quote from that letter. Twitter has not provided information that Mr. Musk has requested for nearly two months, notwithstanding his repeated detailed clarifications intended to simplify Twitter's identification, collection, and disclosure of the most relevant information sought in Mr. Musk's original requests. So it's it's sad from the standpoint that, uh, yeah, Twitter is going to continue to be a manipulator of public opinion, a censor of public opinion, but do you notice how the mask sw- slipped? Do you notice how we finally got a chance to see what the minds behind this company are really like? So there are hard times ahead for the corporate laptoppers, says Jeffrey Tucker, as these companies are forced to either become profitable or go bankrupt. And this is going to lead to a massive crisis and demoralization of an entire generation that's been taught that anyone with the right credentials and connections can get rich forever without doing a lick of real work. So Twitter is facing a very serious problem. Who's the next buyer? And why would this party be any less scrupulous? In fact, maybe investors should be a little more critically minded too. There's a link to the article in the show notes. Check it out at thebrianheidshow.com. Also, I'm including another link to uh, Caitlin Johnstone's latest uh, observations from the uh, uh, edge of the narrative matrix. She's always got a good take on stuff. Again, I I don't always agree with her, but I, I do appreciate the fact that she is putting it out there as truthfully and honestly as she can. And to me, that makes her one of the voices worth listening to. We don't have to agree on everything. And I thought this was a particularly on-target assessment. She says, you may vote and debate freely on any issue which does not affect the functioning of the empire. Think about that. When it comes to how money, weapons, and resources move around the world, suddenly you find your votes don't matter. And your position has no mainstream representation. That's true. 
Those in authority will let you argue till you're blue in the face over whether or not you can have an abortion or whether minorities should have civil rights. They might even let you vote on it, but... Things like military expansionism and neoliberal globalization and deregulation, well, that's off limits. And it's because they rely on false political dichotomies like Democrats versus Republicans to keep everyone fighting over issues which don't affect the functioning of the empire. So the machine can just trudge onward uninterrupted by the local riffraff. That's the entire job of those parties. And the mainstream media exists to keep everyone spellbound by those false dichotomies on the level of discourse and debate. So they manufacture culture wars which split the populace in half over an issue which doesn't affect the empire, and then they continually feed into that debate. So the entire political media class exists for this purpose. Not to help people, not to fight for civil rights, not to create a well-informed populace so democracy can function, but to keep the grubby little myths of the unwashed masses far away from the true levers of power. That's their whole function. That's a pretty big truth pill, but it is right on the money. I want to share something with you now about uh, the, the U.S. media and its curious calm and quiet over the protests taking place in parts of Europe, particularly where Dutch farmers have legitimate reasons to be upset with their political officials. I want you to hear what, uh, what is her name? Eva Vlar. She joins Mark Stein to explain why Dutch farmers are protesting. If you aren't uh, certain, well, why wouldn't our mainstream media cover this? This is going to have shades of the whole uh, Canadian trucker protest. Listen to what to Eva, uh, I'm going to try her, her name here, Vlardingerbrook has to say about what is happening with these protests in Holland. Uh, but so just to explain briefly to your viewers what's happening here, the Dutch uh, farmers are out protesting on the street because our government has pushed a law, a nitrogen law, that is basically going to put a lot of these farmers out of business. They have to cut their livestock by 30% before the end of 2030. And well, like I said, then that land goes to the state. So the state is stealing our farmers' land and the farmers are obviously not having it. I mean, if the state would come into my house and would say, I'm going to take 30% of everything that you have ever worked for, I wouldn't be happy either. But as you saw, the state doesn't respond very well to these farmers protesting and even have used violence and even shot at a 16-year-old boy that you saw driving away from the protest. Mm. So things are getting pretty ugly over here. Why are they responding in this way? And why are they picking this fight now at a time when there are huge disruptions in the food supply chain around the world? Because it's not really about a nitrogen crisis for our government. We even had a report come out, a state report, stating that the new regulations are way too harsh on the farmer, even for the nitrogen goal, quote unquote, that they're trying to reach. So there has to be an ulterior motive. And they're not so secretive, actually, about what their ulterior motive is. We've seen in other state documentation that they need the land for housing. And for who do they need these housings? Well, for new immigrants coming to the country. So that's one. And then another theory that obviously we have is that this is a global agenda. It's the 2030 agenda. It's the Great Reset. And farmers Uh, are, of course, a really uh, uh, independent group that stand in the way of that. So it's... It's again, it's this globalist institutions that are 
that are controlling our everyday lives. And in this form, it's really taking away property. Isn't that chilling? I mean, it's look, you can dismiss it as well. It's just more conspiracy theory. But there there seems to be such a decided push right now to limit your access to your ability to to grow your own food, to to have backyard chickens. Here in America right now, there's there's still concerns about, you know, all this great avian flu epidemic that's that's going around, or I don't know if they've got around to calling it a pandemic. But in some areas, you have millions of chickens and turkeys and other fowl being culled just to be safe. Now you have the Dutch government, among others, you know, trying to take away land from farmers. And I noticed the protests have spread to Germany now. At some level, you got to be willing to ask, why this? Why now? And what's the end goal? I think it comes down to we have a very concerted effort to make us more dependent on the people in power. And there's no better way to get people really dependent than to make sure that their next meal depends on their obedience to those in power. Does that sound cynical? Sorry, I just, I read a history book once and it's clear that's a tactic that's been used before. All right, one final note, just got a minute or so left. Uh, For those who have felt like they've been seduced by the siren song of nearly free solar panels for your home, I would encourage you to click on the link I provide in today's show notes to James Howard Kunstler's latest article. This was published on Lou Rockwell earlier today. He says, bend toward simplicity. And what he's talking about is he, he talks about uh, how he went ahead and, uh, and got the solar panels thinking, yeah, this sounds like a good way to you know, be a little more self-sufficient. But it's not working out. In fact, the title of his article is It's Not Working. He says, now, even when I get my solar electric back up and running again, he goes, something else is sure to go wrong. He's already experiencing difficulties with it. But he says, here's the kicker. In 10 years... My solar panels will be at least half dead. So he says, if you're reading this personal lamentation, maybe consider bending towards simplicity because he wishes that he had. It's a pretty great detailed explanation that he gives. I don't have time to cover it here, but you'll definitely want to click on the link I provide in my show notes. You can find them at thebrianheidshow.com. Thanks again for joining us today. This is The Brian Hyde Show.